You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. All right. Good morning, New City. Okay, guys. How we doing? All right. Glad you're awake, sort of. I'm looking forward to getting into uh, the Word together this morning and to having the opportunity to dive into our our final coffee mug verse today of the season, really. Um, And I hope you've had a chance to enjoy this series, maybe even found a new appreciation for some of these overly used but often uh, misapplied passages of Scripture that we've been looked at over the last few weeks. Um, And this morning, we're going to look at a verse that may well be quoted out of context more than any other in the Bible, and at least any other in the Old Testament, and that's 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. Now, it's pretty safe to say that you know this verse. Even if you don't recognize the address, every two to four years in this country, it's quoted ad nauseum leading up to Election Day. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Historically speaking, few verses have been co-opted with greater frequency or to such an extent as this one. Dating back some 1,600 years to the first sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410 AD and over the centuries since, People have used this passage in ways that are often far from the original context and that seek to serve some desired outcome of the moment. From the Crusades of the 11th to 13th centuries to the Protestant Catholic Wars in Europe of the 16th and 17th centuries, from the churches and platforms that littered both north and south of the American Civil War to the trenches of World War I's Western Front, Second Chronicles has been invoked in times of great conflict and stress as a way to tether one cause or another, oftentimes in opposition, to God's will and promises. And if this is historically true, it would almost seem doubly true today. But as we've been doing throughout this sermon series, this morning we're going to seek to go behind the rhetorical curtain and to look at this verse in the context of Scripture, both where it is narratively located in Second Chronicles, as well as what it means in the light of Christ's coming and the revelation of his redeeming work for us in the New Testament. So with that in mind, please open your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to read verses 11 through 16 together. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be here forever. My eyes and heart will be there for all time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we just ask that you would meet us in your inspired word this morning. As we come to the scripture, Lord, would your spirit move in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, to understand and to, to see this text anew, this text that we hear oh so often. Lord, would you just meet us this morning and, and speak to us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us in your word, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would um, just move in our midst, Lord, that you would just use my message, Lord, um, my, my weak words, Lord, to communicate your truth this morning, God. Lord, would you just... Um, meet us as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's get this out of the way. By show of hands, who's excited to talk about politics this morning? Anyone? With me? No, okay, I'm kidding, mostly. I mean, we are going to talk about politics, as the Christian faith itself is inherently political. After all, we proclaim the good news of a king you ever think about that? Of a king who's come, who's disarmed his enemies and laid down his life for his people. We, we proclaim the news of a kingdom, his kingdom, that is drawn near, that is breaking in, that is on the move today all around the world. So yes, as we go through this this morning, we are going to get political, but maybe, not just, maybe just not in the way that we're used to thinking of politics. But first, we need to do some background work. The passage we just read is actually part of a much larger six-chapter section in the beginning of 2 Chronicles, detailing the building and, and the consecration of God's temple in Jerusalem by King Solomon. Up until this time, you see, the worship of God in Israel had been centered around the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that Moses and the people had constructed at Mount Sinai to house the Ark of the Covenant and had carried with them through all their wilderness wanderings and into the promised land. For centuries, the priests of Israel had served and offered worship to God at the tabernacle. But then a generation before Solomon, it was laid upon David's heart to build the Lord a more permanent place, a more permanent house. See, God had raised David up in that generation. He had delivered him from his enemies, established him as king over all Israel, and he promised David that his house would endure forever. And in response, David wanted to build God a house in the midst of his people. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we're told that when the king, that's David in this case, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But then one of his little humorous moments in Scripture, apparently Nathan left after giving David the green light and heard from the Lord. And the Lord told Nathan and said, no, 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 this is not for David, but for his son to build me a house. So flash forward a few decades and here we are. This house, this temple has been built. The Ark of the Covenant has been placed inside the Holy of Holies. And by the first few verses of chapter 7 here, the dedication ceremony is in full swing. In verse 1 it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. So this dramatic scene that we're seeing here at the temple under Solomon is actually playing out in a fashion that's very reminiscent of the consecration of the tabernacle several centuries earlier. In, in Exodus 40, the very last chapter of Exodus, verses 34 and 35, when the tabernacle is consecrated, we read that a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled it. And then likewise, in Leviticus chapter 9, which you guys might remember from earlier this summer, verses 23 and 24, it says, And Aaron and Moses went into the tent, and they came out, and they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So, Sorry, I wanted to read all that because our passage this morning, our coffee mug verse, is steeped in this Old Testament history. It's, it's the Lord's response to Solomon's prayer of dedication over God's house in the midst of Israel. When God said to the king, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When he said this to Solomon, he's speaking in the context of covenant. In particular, the Mosaic covenant, which was established, which established nation, or excuse me, which established Israel as God's holy nation. You look over in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, we see where God describes the covenant he's going to make with the descendants of Abraham, who he just delivered out of slavery in Egypt. God said to them, now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God's promise to Solomon reaffirms the promise of that covenant calling. That if the people of Israel would only heed his voice, would hold to the covenant they had made with him, he would keep them as his special people, set apart to bear witness to him and his goodness. And if they strayed, if they sinned against God and looked to other gods, even if they disobeyed him and mistreated their neighbor, he would remain faithful to them who he called. So that if they would but humble themselves and pray and seek his face, and turn toward him, he would hear their prayers, he would forgive their sin, and he would heal their land. So that's the promise. That's, that's the promise in the context of the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Yet, as we know from the story of ancient Israel in the Old Testament, the people did not remain faithful. And over time, they even stopped turning back to God. They even stopped repenting. They, they went their own way and gave themselves over to corrupt gods and corrupt rulers, and corrupt practices. This kingdom, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, became just like the peoples and nations around them. And so God handed them over to those nations. 
First, under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Israel split in two, so like right after Solomon. The southern kingdom remaining under the rule of David's family, while the northern kingdom would be ruled by upwards of nine different dynasties, corrupt dynasties, over the course of 200 years before finally being conquered and subsumed by the Assyrian Empire in 720 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah, where the Davidic line continued, limped on for another 120 years before finally being overthrown and carried into exile by the Babylonians in 597 B.C. and 587 B.C., kind of twice. Yet, even in all this, God was faithful to his promises. He heard the cries of his people in exile in Babylon, and after several decades, he brought about the conquest of that city by the Persian king Cyrus, who, after establishing his reign there, issued an edict permitting the exiles of Judah to return home and to begin to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, which had been destroyed in the conquest. But even though the family, the line of David continued, there was no longer a king in Jerusalem after this. And with the exception of a 100-year period following the uh, Maccabean revolt of the 160s BC and the arrival of the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC, the Jewish, would remain, the Jewish people would remain a vassal state, ruled by the mighty empires of their day. First the Persians, then the Greeks, and finally the Romans. But what about God's promise? In 2 Chronicles 7.14, in Babylon, they cried out. They humbled themselves. They prayed and sought God's face. Why didn't he restore their kingdom and heal their land? Well, it wasn't that God didn't answer. He did. It's just that this promise, though given in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, was always bigger than it. See, centuries before Sinai, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we find the first record of a promise God made to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. He says to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel's role was to be a witness to the nations, a light shining in the darkness, a people through which God would bless all the families of the earth. And through this tattered line of Israel, this post-exilic Judah, God was going to send a new king, a better king, a greater king than David Solomon, who would inaugurate a new kingdom, a better kingdom, a greater kingdom than Israel or any other nation on the earth. And by the hand of this king, forgiveness would flow to all the families of the earth. And through the inbreaking work of his kingdom, all creation would be healed. Five centuries after the exiles returned from Babylon, when the angel came to Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, he proclaimed this very thing. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God had not forsaken his people, nor forgotten his promises, whether to Abraham, to Moses, or to Solomon. And though by all appearances, power and authority belonged to Caesar in that day, and Rome ruled with an iron fist, God's kingdom would not be thwarted, and the true king was coming. When Jesus first began his ministry, he proclaimed this very news. In Mark 1, verses 14 through 15, he says, it says that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The good news that Jesus declared was that God was faithful to his promises. God did not leave his people alone in exile, but he had come now among them. He had taken up residence in their midst, bringing forgiveness and healing. The king of heaven brought his kingdom now to earth, and it would never be overcome. But what kind of kingdom was he bringing? This man that had no position, no army, and what followers he did have were unremarkable. Even when arrested finally in the middle of the night, he would not let them shed blood on his behalf. When asked accusingly by Pilate, or when accused by Pilate of seeking a throne for himself, Jesus answered in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered. But my kingdom is not from the world. So here we have the king had come. His kingdom was breaking in, but he wouldn't fight. He wouldn't allow his people to fight. He didn't seek to reestablish the kingdom of Israel as so many had hoped earlier in his ministry. Nor did he seek to topple the might of Rome and Caesar as so many thought he would or hoped he would. Instead, this king went to the cross. He who had healed the sick who had given sight to the blind, cast out demons, and raised the dead to life, was crucified, died, and was buried. And so the question remains, what about the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14? Even the disciples who had walked closest with Jesus were asking, what happened? What went wrong? So they couldn't see on Friday that Sunday was coming. They couldn't bring themselves to see how God could possibly bring healing now. But on Easter morning, everything changed. The king burst forth from his grave with forgiveness and healing in his wings, as the song says. Beginning with Mary Magdalene in the garden, he showed himself to his followers and he revealed to them the wonder of God's plan from the very beginning to reveal a people, or to redeem, excuse me, a people for himself to rescue them from the clutches of sin, death, and the devil. And then he sent his people out in his name, not as conquerors, but as heralds, bringing this good news to all peoples. Matthew 28, we all know this passage, verses 18 through 20, records that when Jesus came, he said to them before he ascended, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Likewise, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You, my followers, will receive the Holy Spirit, or power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So now we have God's people who are called by his name, sent out into all the world as ambassadors for God's kingdom, called to live as resident aliens wherever they find themselves. Kingdom ambassadors, resident aliens. The Apostle Paul, um, writing to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 320, highlights this when he says, remember, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so with all this context in mind, how should we understand, how should we apply 2 Chronicles 7.14 today? Well, let's start by jumping forward, not to today, but jumping forward 400 years from, roughly 400 years from Christ's ascension and the birth of the church to the fall of Rome, or at least the first fall of Rome that I mentioned earlier. The year was 410 AD when the great walls of Rome were breached for the first time in nearly eight centuries. And news of this defeat reverberated across the ancient Mediterranean world. It had been less than 100 years since the emperor Constantine had issued the Edict of Milan, ending the persecution of the church and making the Christian faith legal throughout the empire. And in the intervening decades, Christianity had quickly gone from being tolerated being honored to, in 380 AD, being named the official religion of the Roman Empire. So the question on everyone's mind in 410 was, how could the city of Rome fall? How could Rome fall a mere 30 years after it had adopted Christianity as its official religion? How could God remove his blessing from a people and a land who are now Christian? In the years that followed, St. Augustine wrote what would become his magnum opus. He was the Bishop of Hippo at the time Rome fell. Um, And the writing he wrote was the city of God. And in it, he confronted two primary accusations that were kind of along these lines. On the one hand, he addressed the pagan assertion that Rome, the eternal city, fell because the people and their rulers had left the traditional gods of the empire. Jupiter, Mars, just name planets and you can figure out who they are. And he left these gods for this new god of love and peace and forgiveness who couldn't defend them. So he spoke to the pagans. But on the other hand, Augustine also addressed this Christian panic that that had gripped the western part of the empire, that somehow God had abandoned them, that the sacking of Rome was somehow tantamount to the sacking of God's church itself. But not so, the bishop contended. For Rome, even in all its splendor, even in its longevity, was but the city of man, the earthly city. But the church said, the church belongs to the city of God. 
Now, this is not to say that Augustine was ambivalent to the plight of the imperial city. Quite the contrary, he was heartbroken. He was shaken. But he glimpsed through this terrible event a greater reality upon which his and our hope is fixed. The coming kingdom of God, which transcends all earthly cities and will one day fill the whole world. <clears throat> Excuse me, guys. I always feel like my voice is going this time of morning. Maybe we can change the service. And I can, yeah. All right. In a sermon that he delivered um, shortly after the refugees began arriving at the city of Hippo from Rome, he's reported to have said, God does not raise up citadels of stone and marble for us, but outside of this world, he raises up citadels of the Holy Spirit for us, citadels of love which could never collapse, which will forever stand in glory when this world has been reduced to ashes. Rome has collapsed, and your hearts are outraged by this. But Rome was built by men like yourself. Since when did you believe that men had the power to build things that are eternal? Your souls, filled with the light of the Holy Spirit, will not perish. For many in Augustine's day had come to equate the kingdom of God with the empire of Rome, he realized that though God was at work in and through the empire, his kingdom was of another world. And he exhorted and encouraged those believers who were despondent at the city's demise to look beyond the seven hills, <clears throat> excuse me, to look behind, beyond the seven hills of Rome to that singular hill of Calvary, where the king of heaven and earth defeated and disarmed his enemies and made a way for his kingdom to burst forth into the world. He exhorted them not to look to the power and might of Caesar, which was doomed to wane, but to the love and gentleness of our Savior. <laughs> Thanks. I have water, too. I just never drink it. I don't know why, Sam. Thanks. <clears throat> I should do this. I have a bottle up here. I just never drink it. <clears throat> All right. That's better. Maybe. Wow, guys, sorry, I forget where I was. No, um, no. but Augustine, he, he, he encouraged them not to look to the power, to the might of Caesar and imperial Rome, which was doomed to wane, but to the love and gentleness of our Savior, which would endure forever. And in many ways, today, we're not unlike the Romans of Augustine's day. We too wrestle with what it means to be Christians in a nation that, though steeped in Christian language and iconography, is built by the hands of men and is more in common with the earthly cities of Rome and Babylon than with the heavenly city of the New Jerusalem and God's kingdom. And it's been said that in many ways, 2 Chronicles 7.14 has become the John 3.16 of American civil religion. Now, this may seem kind of unfair, for as we've seen throughout history, nation after nation has laid similar claims. But I must admit there's a case to be made for this. In the last few weeks alone, let's say since the beginning of August, I've heard this verse referenced with connotation that it refers to America as a uniquely Christian nation. I've heard it read as a call to prayer for national revival, but again, with the sense that as a nation, we've strayed from our God-given covenant and we need to return to it. I've heard it read and invoked as a call to partisan arms and culture warfare. 
a battle cry that we need to take our country back for God. And I've even seen it on a billboard advocating for a particular political candidate, implying that this person was God's person for the job. All too often today, this verse, rather than being used to point us to a city whose foundations will never be shaken, is taken, is torn from its original context and used as a kind of political rallying cry or partisan rallying cry or patriotic rallying cry. With the people in this passage um, somehow referring to some form or section of the American people and the land referring in one way or another this country. All told, the meaning of the text is often portrayed as a call to present-day America to turn back or to come back to God and thereby enjoy his blessing and his favor once again. But if the Lord, as we've seen, if the Lord has been indeed working throughout history, as we've seen, to, to set apart a people for himself, a people who will transcend earthly cultures, ethnicities, borders, and bear witness to him, and, and to his kingdom that likewise transcends earthly politics, governments, nations, and will one day fill all creation, restoring it and making it new, then when we read the invitation and the promise of Second Chronicles 7.14, then we can be sure that it's not talking about a singular nation, be it ancient Israel, the empire of Rome, the Christendom of the Middle Ages, or the United States of America. He is speaking to his people, God's promises to his people, the redeemed in Christ from every corner of the world throughout all time. And he is speaking of his kingdom, which has broken in, and the promise of new creation that it brings. But what about America? What about the church in America today? How should we pray in light of this passage? How do we engage our neighbors, our culture, our politics in a way that is in keeping with the reality of our greater citizenship, in a way that honors our true king? I'd like to recommend four ways that we, God's people, are called to pray and engage with the world around us. Four ways that we can honor 2 Chronicles 7.14 without misapplying it directly to our immediate context. First, and this is actually one of our coffee mug verses as well from earlier in the summer. First, we're called to seek the welfare of the city. Look with me at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. When God's people were carried away into exile in Babylon. Some of them thought that God had left them, forsaken them entirely, while others thought that God would soon rescue them and return them to their home. So God had the prophet Jeremiah write the captives a letter that said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. <clears throat> Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
So how are we, God's people, to live in exile, to carry ourselves while sojourning in the earthly city? As good neighbors, as people who, who care for our community in which we reside, as a people who seek to actively bless our city. And we may not live in a city, but I'm speaking of wherever we may find ourselves, the suburbs, the country, as people who seek the welfare of the community in which we live, the earthly city in which we reside. Second, we're called to be a kingdom of priests. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here, the Apostle Peter, who's writing later in his life to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, which were in the midst of the Roman Empire, he exhorted them to remember who they were as God's people and who they'd once been lost in darkness and, and to live accordingly. He says, we are set apart by God to make known his good news, to live as a people who have been rescued at great cost, to walk not in arrogance but in humility, to keep our conduct. He goes on later in the, in the chapter, it says about keeping our conduct with our neighbors honorable so that in all ways we may proclaim the goodness of our God. In short, we're to live as God's priests in the city, God's priests throughout the lands. And as God's priests, we're called to pray for all peoples. We can look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I know I'm kind of racing through these, but you get the idea. As God's priests, we're called to pray for all peoples. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're called to pray for all, Paul's saying, for neighbor and stranger, for friend and enemy, for rich and poor, are powerful and weak. On their behalf, we're to offer up requests for God's providence, make intercession for their well-being, and lift up prayers of thanks for all that God has given us. Paul even calls the believers of his day to pray for their kings and rulers, who at that time were pagan and often antagonistic to them and to their plight, that through their prayers, more people might come to know Christ come to the saving knowledge of the truth. So we're called to pray for all peoples. And then fourth and finally, <clears throat> we are called to pray for God's kingdom to come. We're to pray for God's kingdom to come. As we read together earlier and as Ryan prayed before the sermon, Jesus calls us to pray kingdom prayers. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10, when the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray, he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, I said earlier, we were going to get political this morning, and here we are. Here we are. There's no more political act than praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray this portion of the Lord's Prayer, we acknowledge that we are citizens of a kingdom that, though not of this world, is even now breaking into this world and is at work in this world today. We are praying, in essence, that heaven would invade earth, that the rule and reign of Christ, our King, would be extended and that he would heal our land, his creation. We are inviting the Spirit to bring conviction of sin to bring justice for the oppressed, and to bring hope to the hopeless. And this prayer is also a prophetic reminder that no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter who wins the next election, no matter who wins the next war, no matter what leaders or parties or nations rise and fall today and tomorrow, we, church, serve a king who is coming again and who is promised to set all to rights. So what does this mean? Does it mean we throw out our Second Chronicles coffee mugs? Maybe, if they're tacky. But I don't think so. Well, again, we can talk about it later. But I, in fact, I do think the hope of this verse, the hope of this verse when held in the greater context of God's unfolding revelation in Scripture is far better than we or our coffee mug could possibly imagine. Because our king laid down his life for us, we may now daily humble ourselves before God and pray. We may constantly seek his face and repent of our sins and brokenness and do all these things with confidence that he hears us and that he forgives us. And because our king rose again from the grave, defeating sin, death, and the devil, we can take heart knowing that his kingdom will endure and that all creation will be healed. Amen? Well, and this morning, as we wrap things up, we have before us the table here, this great reminder of our king's finished work. The juice speaks to the blood that he shed on our behalf and the bread to his body that was broken for us, inaugurating a new and greater covenant a covenant that will never be repealed, never be overcome, and never be broken. But the table also, it kind of, it points us forward, reminding us of a feast yet to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all God's people will come together once and for all to celebrate the finished work of the King and the consummation of his eternal kingdom. The earthly city will be no more, yet all the land will be healed, and the new heavens and the new earth will endure forever and ever. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you this morning to take and come and take part of the Lord's Supper with us. The way we take communion here at New City is we form two lines here in the center. There'll be two, four servers up front. You can break up a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice. Um, if you're looking for, if you need a gluten alternative, we have that in the middle as well. 
Um, so I'm just going to pray and invite the servers to come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to the table this morning, we ask that you would meet us here. Would you reveal to us, reveal to us anew what it means to be your people, to be called by your name, to be citizens and ambassadors of your kingdom? Lord, we, we come before you, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We come seeking your face, asking that you would turn our hearts toward you, that you would forgive us our sin and heal us of our brokenness. God, we thank you for the good news of your Son, our crucified and risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace and the love you have lavished on us through his redeeming work on our behalf. And we give you praise for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst, for his enlivening and empowering work in our hearts, in our community, and in all your church throughout the world. And together we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.